Welcome to Free For All, an episode-by-episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner. Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media, and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. (laughs) And I think The Prisoner was a decisive factor in how we became friends. 17, I was. I'd got absolutely obsessed with The Prisoner, Um, like a mosquito hitting a major artery. Unexpectedly, I'd just become bloated with Prisoner. Prisoner this, Prisoner everything. And I'd been to Port Merion. I'd uh, been to the prisoner shop. I'd got all the stuff, the pens and whatnot. And I had the badge. I had the number six badge. And I used to wear this. Do you remember on that awful leather, that, I say le- fake leather brown flying jacket I used to wear that I fondly imagined made me look like Maverick from uh, Top Gun, but actually made me look like the kind of person who sells hooky VHS videos from the back of my Yugo on a Sunday morning. <laughs> but I'd been to a party wearing it. And, of course, it, with a six badge, everyone would come up to me and go, oh, you're six? You're six, are you? <laughs> and I'd just mutter under my breath, you nimrod, like you'd get a reference to some beloved allegorical TV science fiction masterpiece. But you saw it at a party. and You knew my brother. He was there. And you saw this badge and went, ah, I'll be seeing you. And I thought, oh, God. Oh, I can be friends with this guy. And we just chatted away for an hour, just prisoner talk, prisoner talk. And thirty coming up to 30 years later, um, the conversation has still not finished. We're still knee-deep in it. But, um, I mean, for, for me, the, my first exposure to The Prisoner was in WH Smith's when I saw the, the VHS cassette of two episodes. And I think one was Chimes of Big Ben. And that was on, the, I think it was on the uh, five, was it Channel 5 Network 5 yes. video releases back in the, I think it was the late 80s when VHS was still around. And, and I remember reading it and, and thinking, oh, my God, this this is right up my street. But it was like 20 quid or something. As VHS cassettes what? were. Yeah, it was a rip-off, wasn't it? For two <laughs> episodes as well. And I, and I remember not having, you know, being a 16, 17-year-old, not having any money. So, of course, I didn't buy it. And it was only when Channel 4 then broadcast it again back in, I think it was about 92. It was 92, yeah. Was it, it was the 25th anniversary. There we go. 92. That I actually set the VCR to record and... Uh, I never miss an episode anyway, so no. I just recorded them that, anyway. That's it. I was doing exactly the same thing as you. I had to sort of tape them as well, pause the adverts, of course. But you got it, those wonderful little bumpers as well, though, didn't you? Yes, yes. You know, with the penny farthing, which, of course, is now missing from the uh, the DVD and Blu-ray releases. Uh, they're there as extras, aren't they? They're there as a Oh, yeah, special the interstitials. But, you know, there's that moment where... Guy Dolman in the first in Arrival where he says, uh, I think we've got a challenge on our hands. Yeah. And, then, and then you got the bumper. <laughs> yeah. And every time I watch that episode now, I still yeah, I, wait yeah. for that bumper to come in. Of course, it's, it's not. It's like when you have a, a, a favourite vinyl record that has mm. a jump on it. Yeah. And then you buy it on C- CD and say, well, no, there should be a jump here. Yeah. You um, kind of get used to it, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's wonderful. It had been, in it, by the time I was sort of 15, it was already in the sort of the public consciousness. Mm. They were making adverts for parodies and mm. that. Persia, uh, wasn't it? Persia did one. It was Renault, I think, wasn't it? Was it Renault? Yeah. Something yeah. French. If we do, by the way, if, if we do get anything wrong, please feel free. We will be supplying uh, an email address and we'll have some social media pages. Please correct us. It, yes. Um, you know, we're not professing to, to know everything. And if we do make mistakes, we're only human. It won't be, uh, it won't be our email address, but it will be <laughs> an email address. <laughs> yes. One thing to, to stress we're both 
devotees and fans. We're not experts. We're not. Uh, we haven't done PhDs in this. Uh, we just love it, and as I'm sure you do as well. Mm. Going back to that, my first exposure, I think, was. Do you remember a thing called TV Heaven? Yes. With Frank yes. Muir. Hello. <laughs> and it was mainly sort of ITC stuff. Mm. And uh, he'd do a little introduction, and uh, then there'd be an episode. And the episode they chose to sort of represent the prisoner and everything it was, was the girl who was deaf. I remember this. It was on Channel 4. Yes. yes. Uh, which, uh, I guess 1990 or 91 or something. Like that. It was I before they showed it again. I think that's the first episode of The Prisoner I watched. Yeah. And it's the worst episode of The Prisoner you can't really you well, can watch. It has nothing to, <laughs> nothing do, to do with the actual... So why, why they chose that one. It's but, more like an Avengers episode. Yes. Really, isn't it? But that's what I thought. Wow, I know what The Prisoner is all about now. It's... Uh, it's like about, the Avengers. It's about, yeah, it's... Yeah. <laughs> It's a kind of capery thing. Doing a bit of research into this before we started, it's a proper rabbit hole, mm. uh, and you kind of think, you think you kind of a bit of a, uh, a bit of a prisoner head, uh, and then you suddenly realise, <laughs> you know, next to nothing. And there's so yeah. much yeah, writing yeah, yeah. out there, but it's testament to how it's it's fascinated people across the the generations, and that's exactly what happened to us. Mm. And I bet you, if you showed it to a load of seventeen-year-olds now, they'd just go, "Well, this is, <laughs> this is amazing." Yeah. It gets its hooks into you. The yes, show, it does. it's like as J.J. Abrams uses the mystery box. There's a, a very interesting TED lecture that J.J. Abrams does, and it's about this mystery box. I think it's his grandfather or his uncle bought him back in the 1960s and 1970s when he was a little boy, and it was one of those kind of toy shop magic sets. We used to have them here, like the Paul Daniels. I had written that. the, the yeah. Paul Daniels magic set. You got a wand. Yeah, which didn't work. Yeah, some cups with uh, you know the P <laughs> under yeah. some cups, some false cards. Like you get the idea. But the thing is, with this magic box, um, you don't know what's inside. There's no content list. So Abrams has never opened this mystery box. He doesn't know what's inside, and he's never opened it. <laughs> so to him, this box holds that symbolism and kind of mystery. And then to, when he opens the box, like, and he, you know, you can do a magic trick and you go, oh, my God, that's the best magic trick I've ever seen in my life. And then the magician goes, yeah, this is how we do it. You go, oh, oh all right. really? Oh. And it loses all its power, doesn't it? Yes. And you'd think Abrams would have learned that lesson when he made Lost. Because <laughs> he, he, he threw, he, he, he stole from the prisoner. You, you know, you've got this, yes. this, this mysterious setting. You can't escape. There's uh, the branded goods in the shops in, in Lost. And, you know, all these questions are being asked about uh, the island. But it's kind of playing on that mystery. Mm. But they do answer some of the questions in Lost, whereas McGowan didn't. Yes. McGowan knew what it was about. And, and there's a video, a, a video that came out recently, which I think is on the, the network store, In My Mind. McGowan kind of gives a little bit more away as to what he was thinking. But, of course, we don't really need it, do we? We don't really need an answer because it's survived over 50 years by people putting their own interpretation of what it means. Yes. Like Alex Cox. Well, Alex Cox was a... Vital part of our childhood because he, he movie, presented movie drum, yes, which uh, took us into a uh, exposed our generation to so many yeah. fantastic films. Absolutely. Some of them his. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, he put. Uh, he, he remember one of his uh, screenings was Walker, his mm. fantastic sort of uh, Texas Ranger. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> if only. If only. Uh, yeah, could have done with a bit of Chuck and, and Harris is, um, and it was this wonderful mm. allegorical. Film as many of his tend to be, but he wrote his book was uh, I'm not a number. Uh, but he which... kind of posits that number six was a, a rocket scientist in there. And uh, the only the only issue I had with that book is that that's Alex Cox's interpretation, and then that's fine. 
and everyone's entitled to their own interpretation of, of what the prisoner's about. Mm. But I don't think you can actually... It's like all the people who, who think number six is John Drake. Yes. I think if, if you kind of have to have that, if you have to think it's John Drake, I think you're missing the point. Yeah, well, it was McGoon said it was. It's it's uh, in that wonderful voice of his. It was a sort of it's a it's a question about a conundrum, and if mm. you answer the conundrum, it's no longer a conundrum. Exactly, which, which is, goes back to the mystery books. And of course, and that, I think that's specifically why it's it's dated so well, and probably will never date. It's now mm. sort of turning from a '60s relic into just this unique, a complete unique TV show. There isn't. I mean, say Lost, but I don't think there really is anything. Like the prison, I do, and I, I don't think there, there ever well, will be again. There was a show. Do you remember when uh, the UPN, the United Paramount Channel, came mm. out? Not in Britain, but more in America. And the Star Trek Voyager was going to be their flagship show. Mm. Um, we were talking back in, I think it was nineteen ninety-five, and one of the shows that they launched was, um, do you know, Bruce Greenwood? Yes, uh, who was in? Um, well, he was the captain, of Captain Pike, Pike in and the new Star Trek, the Abrams films. Yeah, nice Abrams link there. <laughs> he uh, he played a prison, a number six type character, who basically had his identity removed, and people, you know, his family and friends didn't know him, and you know, was he going mad? Oh um, yes, do you remember? Um, this? Yes, that was very prisonerish. I thought. I mean, there was there was a payoff to it. There was a resolution, which had a lot in common with the remake with Jim Caviezel. And of course he was number two and he was perfect, wasn't he, as number two? Yes. He's one of the highlights of that of that show, but ultimately He was the only highlight, I think. He was the only highlight. Even he well, wasn't Ruth Wilson in it as well. Even, I remember at the time even he said uh, Well we'll be answering lots of questions in this <laughs> one. You can't say that about the original, can you? He was yeah. eating a sandwich at the and time. And you wouldn't think he was from Bolton. Oh well, it comes out every now and then. But I mean, the, one of the lovely things about the number two character is the is you see this cast list of some of the best, most recognisable character actors, yeah. British character actors, and it's like, oh, can I have a go? Yeah. I'd like, do, do I get to take a stint? Um, I mean, you can imagine today you'd have obviously Stephen Fry who did it in the tube. He did. Yes. Uh, parody, <laughs> he was very, very, very funny in and that. You had Susie and the Banshees and XTC turn up playing uh, Subgrass later on. Place. Um, Supergrass film there, didn't they? Doctor Who, The Mask of Mandragora. And then The View from the Village, obviously, before The Prisoner. And I think that's where McGowan first encountered Port Marion. Yes, in The, in the Danger, Danger Man. Man. Yeah. A bleak stroke secret agent for right. our American he listeners. He drives, doesn't he, in the, the, the entranceway, and you've got the sh- where the shop is now, where number six's house was, and there's all these people kind of pretending they're Italian, <laughs> lounging in the, in the North Wales sun, which is a little bit of an oxymoron uh, for North Wales. Because uh, we're quite lucky, we're in North Wales. I think we're the only we're going to be the only podcast that's actually within spitting distance of Port Marion. Exactly, which is yes. quite nice. We're actually on the doorstep, so I, I'm very lucky that I get to take students out to Port Marion. And uh, what we do is uh, we watch Arrival. I take some of the shots from Arrival, and then get the students to replicate them. They take their cameras and they they find the vantage points, and it's quite a lovely little experience for them. But I've had a lot of students when they've been there, they bought the set. Yeah. <laughs> because they've just intrigued by you know, and they were talking 18, 19 year olds. It doesn't matter that it's in four by three aspect ratio, you know, and it's not widescreen ultra high definition. It's you know, I know it's in high def, but you know, a lot of them are intrigued by the premise. Yes, you know, and they want to know more. And of course, you don't tell them, you know, don't give them every bit of information, but you let them find out yeah. themselves. Henry and Daydrive. Interestingly enough, I once worked on a pantomime with the late Rod Hull. <laughs> and emu 
I was going to say. And uh, he, he, I was basically on stage. I was an on-stage tech. So I was plugging things in and you get the usual kind of thing. And he went, how do you pronounce this? I had to write out Penryn Daedrith phonetically for Rod Hull. Because, you know, during the panto, he's like doing the old jokes. And I've got Mrs. Doris Samso and she's un- she's uh, uh, ill. And he's like, oh, no, she's 111. <laughs> you know, that, that joke. Or, the other, or she's 111 and she's like, that. Can't, you know, those old classic panto jokes. Yeah. But he would do, he was like, yeah, what, what does that say? He's like, Penryn Daedrith. What? What? Pen? Pen. Pen. Rin, R-I-N. Day, D-A-Y. Dry. Th. Penryn Daedrith. And he went, Penryn Daedrith. I went, Perfect, you yeah. got it. So I had to write. He asked me then every Welsh name. Is that Bala? Yeah, that's Bala. <laughs> Brilliant. And so I was now his interpreter. <laughs> I was Rod Hall's interpreter for for about three weeks. He used to come to me and say, "How'd you say that? How'd you say that?" For those listening outside the UK, Rod Hall was a famous celebrity, um, kind of puppeteer, wasn't he? Kitchens presenter. He had, what was that? The pink windmill. The pink windmill with grot bags. Um, and uh, famously attacked uh, a chat very, show host very, Michael Parkinson. Yes, a variety performer almost, wasn't he? And he was the emu kind of pu- emu puppet. He was he was from the age when um, most children's enter- most TV entertainers mm. had basically learnt their craft at a, at a, as a red coat in a Butlins. Yeah, you know, yeah. All, pretty much all of them did. Variety that, working men's clubs. Exactly. Yeah, that sort of some vaudeville, like the last kind of era of vaudeville as well. I love it. There was such, a, such an ITC thing that you watch yeah. episodes of The Saint and they'll have this stock footage of the Colosseum in Rome or something. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah, yeah, cut yeah. to the standard yeah. alley. Peter in... Wingard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's all like, it's, uh, what's it, Summerits and then all the shots of people somewhere. And there's, there he is in some studio in Elstree or Bournemouth or something like that. He's been dressed with Italian <laughs> yeah. posters or something. And then Warren Mitchell will turn up with doing his Italian sort of routine. So, hey, Mr. Templar. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hello, then Luigi. Went on to uh, well, no, I think he was at the time doing uh, all the you know till death us do part and uh, anybody who looks slightly exotic, they would yeah. In Warren as, Mitchell. I know he's, he's <laughs> pretty good. English he was... kind of looking. Blo- it's like an older Alexi Sale though, a little bit, isn't he? I suppose. Yes. But, uh, but yeah. Anyway, getting back on track. One thing that we're not going to do is we're not going to give you uh, an episode by episode description. We're not going to just say this is happening and this is happening because we find that's quite dull we want to concentrate on the scenes and and just draw things from them and what we've noticed what we've kind of maybe just talk about production aspects maybe mm-hmm. let's a bit trivia in fact some continuity errors at, at times if we, if we think they're appropriate but we're not going to go do a kind of blow by blow account of what the episode's about so arrival Yes, indeed. Um, or the arrival. The arrival. Yes, I can do research noted too. Noted on the on the, <laughs> on the clapperboard. Yeah. Yes. Well, it was an absolute. Um, well, it was a treat to watch it again for the first time. Mm. I have to say, it was straight back to being seventeen and um, staying up all night to watch it. What does it tell us? Well, it's. I mean, there are so many wonderful things about it. Mainly the idea that he's completely vulnerable and uh, he has he's clueless, and so you're dropped in as well at the same time. I've, I've got some information just to give context here. So this was shot in the exterior scenes in Port Marion in September 66. Yes. It aired on ITV on 7.30pm, Friday 29th September 1967. And back in the day, though, back in 1967, we've got the introduction of colour yes. was coming in to British television. Of course, not, not everybody was able to go out and buy a colour television. So a lot of people saw this episode in, in black and white, which is a huge shame. It's the amount of vibrancy. Yes. In there. 
it's like snooker. Yes, on black and white on TV. I mean, so so much of the eye popping and the, and the kind of the, the kind of discombobulation mm. is is the kind of the the wonderful past the gentle pastels and also things like the, the there's a scene the first time the doors open of number two's building where McGowan's face is suddenly bathed in purple, which is kind of the moment where it transforms from a spy episode into a science fiction episode. It's literally that purple bathe. Yeah. By Jimi Hendrix. That's the, I mean, that's the. Um, that would have been completely lost if you'd have watched that in black and white. But the other interesting thing about this is is that back in 1967, we would have regional variations. Oh, yeah, I just want to say, when, when was it on HTV? When yeah. would we have got it? Now, according to um, Andrew Pixley's wonderful book on The Prisoner, um, th- this was shown at 7.30 on, on ITV in the Midlands and Grampian. <laughs> so everyone in Birmingham and, and Scotland were getting this, but of course at HTV Harlech Television, which is where the you know the area of where the prisoner was was shot, would have had it at a different time or maybe a different day. Um, we, I haven't actually got the the airing details because obviously we don't need no no about no. that. But it had a very respectable eleven million viewers. Well, it would have been the I mean McGowan at the time was famously the most famous person on TV, the highest paid as mm. well. Uh, more so even than Roger Moore would shock me. But the, the strange thing with Danger Man is that even even now, it, it's never shown. Mm. Uh, the Saint is on just well, permanently. And I think maybe because of the black and white episodes, because they outnumber, the half-hour black and white outnumber the colour yes, episodes. Yes, yes. Well, like Secret the, Agent Man, as the Americans would call it. Secret Agent Man, Great no tune, copyright violation. And then the um, like the Avengers, when they put the Avengers on these days, it's only the yeah, colour the episodes they, they yeah, put on. Yeah. Poor old... Uh, a poor old... Uh, uh, on, on a black on a black man, man yeah. <laughs> and the best, I think the best... The best prison uh, Avenger episodes are the black and white ones, but that's for a different podcast. <laughs> but that's the thing with Danger Man. It's like you, that's the show that made McGowan a household name and, and a huge star. But it's kind of strange to think. Well, but I, he was, I don't really know he why he was offered the role of Bond, wasn't he? He was, and a, famously, and turned it down. Well, I, I heard that he was. He was. A lot of people say he was quite a sort of prudish hmm. fellow. He wasn't. He wasn't for all this um, uh, shag nasty shenanigans. Hmm. That Bond was uh, famous for. He's kind of, and he was famously in Danger Man. He mm. resisted all that kind of Quite stuff. Quite straight-faced, moralistic. He was. He was. Yeah, he was, he was. A, he was a very ethical man, yeah. uh, McGowan. And I think he saw that something nasty about Bond that he didn't care for. Mm. I suspect. I suspect his portrayal of John Drake and of, yeah. of uh, the prisoner was a sort of kind of counter to to Bond. Mm. I mean, there's in, in the prisoner. He could have. He could have had romantic. Uh, Entanglements, but also some of those. There's a moment in the Chimes of Big Ben, yes. I think, where he kind of he cradles somebody's hair. Yeah. That's it. That, Nadia. That, Nadia, yeah. That's literally that's as that's as far as he gets with any yeah. kind of romance. So, well, I, I thought what might be nice is um, let's have a look at what was on telly. Oh, okay. At the same time, yes, now, please. Eleven million viewers back in 1967 is pretty good, considering you know, like today with all our satellite broadcasting, shows like um, Bake Off and you know, and strictly and things are getting like 10 million, 11 mm-hmm. million viewers at the high peak. You know, we don't have 17 to 25 million viewers like Morecambe and Wise and the EastEnders Christmas specials did. You know, we're now on a, you know, we've got so much choice. So anything that gets 10 million views and now, we, what was it, 70 million people in the UK now? Uh, 66, I think something like that. So I'm, rounding I'm not it, the man to ask. Think about how many people are actually watching television on only three channels as well. And on BBC One at 7.30, so this is what it was competing with, the Hippodrome Circus in Great Yarmouth, presented by 
Bobby Roberts of Liberty Horses. And the Svensons were on. Oh, really? Yeah. It would have been pretty tough to be there. Uh, the Four Angli. Yeah. Zelka and Jerry. Gabriella. The Four Angli? Yeah. Is that plural for Angler? That's how it's spelled. I went on the genome, the B, which is a fantastic site. It shows you all the Radio Times listings. Because we know what was on ITV. It was The Prisoner. But on BBC One BBC Two, yeah. The Hippodrome Circus in Great Yarmouth was on 7.30 on the same night. So you can imagine flicking through the channels, you've got The Prisoner, that. And on BBC Two, uh, BBC Two, you have, which was still a relatively new channel. Yes. You know, it only come in a couple of years before, hadn't it? So famous, famous for its uh, opening <laughs> night. Yes. If you haven't seen it, find it on YouTube. It's fantastic. It's like a Monty Python sketch. It's like John Cleese with his... And now for something complete. The phone's ringing. Yeah. And he's picking up going, hello, <laughs> just one moment, please. Talking to us. Yes, yes. And there's people bringing pieces of paper. Then the sound goes and there's power outages and they're in the fantasy, I, I think. And it, it makes GB News look like the slickest operation. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> but I th- but the, the way he deals with his job, <laughs> hello, yes, it's all going terribly, terribly wrong. Yes. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Uh, could I have some cocaine sent to my desk, please? <laughs> I think I'm going to... <laughs> Can you pick up some uh, some beef on the way home? <laughs> okay, thanks, Mum. Bye. <laughs> yes, we're on, yes, we are on the telly. But yeah, so on BBC Two, there was um, Outlook for Friday toward world government: the question of sovereignty. A study of the United Nations, presented by Erskine Childers and Cliff Mitchellmore. No, David Morse. <laughs> David Morse, not the American actor. No, I'm guessing he was uh, a speaker at the time. But that's quite interesting because let's. You know, I think the person is probably the most appealing thing on television that night. Well, that's what I would have watched. <laughs> I've definitely been watching David Morse. I don't know. Some of that's great. Yeah, great Yarmouth <laughs> has some appeal, of course, so especially the Anglo. ITV was still a relatively new channel, and they were ahead of the game with BBC One because BBC One didn't really start broadcasting in colour. I think until sixty nine seventy. I know when John Pertwee came in as Doctor Who, that went from the black and white of the war games, black and white into colour in uh, 1970 mm. for a spearhead from space. But of course, shot on film. Yes. As was The Prisoner. Yes. And um, one of the things I took from Arrival was just how, how very, very cinematic it looks, mm. which I suspect you have to attribute a lot of that to Don Chaffee, mm. who uh, had only just come off One Million Years BC, which was a huge hit for, uh, for Hammer. Uh, obviously the iconic Raquel Welsh mm. in her sort of strange bikini. But um, he did tend to, I mean, if you look at those, you know, look at the, the crew list, you've got some of those people, like David Tomlin as well, who went on to work with um, Spielberg, didn't he? Yes. Uh, you know, on things like Raiders and Star Wars and stuff well, like that. Well, Tomlin, he actually shot all the Port Merion mm. stuff. So the Don Chaffee, I suspect, was just limited to Borenwood. Mm. where all the studio uh, sets were built. It was the MGM British Studios, wasn't it? In, That's right, in, yes. Born Wood. But um, everything was shot by, by David Tomlin. David Tomlin is a fascinating part, and is slightly overlooked, because there's always this kind of uh, question of authorship, whether it's McGoon or George Markstein. Mm. But George, really, um, the, David Tomlin has more of a, a claim to the authorship of, of this. He actually he produced all the, the series... He was actually part of Everyman Productions. Mm. So he set this up with Patrick McGowan. That is such an important name as well. Everyman. Yes, yes. In the context of The Prisoner, in, in that number six, is arguably an Everyman. Yes. Or should be looked at. And I think that's quite an important title for this production uh, company name as well. Yes. And I think it suggests that very 
right from the beginning. It wasn't sort of a, a spy show that suddenly veered into the into the surreal. But the, it, um, there's a little bit of hoodwick in the audience, though, at the beginning, because it is set up like a spy thriller. Oh, it's absolutely this. My my favourite aspects of the whole thing is that it's it's this extraordinary allegorical piece that's been Trojan horsed mm. into your living rooms. As a big spy ITV sort of uh, caper yeah. series. And it's like going to watch a Disney film with, with your kids. Yes. You know, the kids can enjoy it on one level, but the adults can enjoy it on another level because they throw these little yeah, and it, jokes for the adults in and stuff like that. It's got, uh, you know, it's basically, it was marketed like, you know, dinky toys with mm. the mini mokes and, the, and all this, you know, it had action figures and yeah. all sorts. So it was basically, a, it was a, a kids mm. show to a certain extent. Any, any uh, Exactly the same way that The Avengers was. Um, and yet it wasn't. It clearly wasn't. But it was, and, and it it does operate on both levels very, very successfully, particularly in the first it, half. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought when you say kitchen, I, I would probably say teen. Maybe to, based on the time it was shown, seven thirty in the evening. I was, it's out of the remit of kind of the children's area, isn't it? Oh yeah, I don't mean sort of like infants. And no, I, no, CBs, I, more more like teens and t- teenagers, people who like James Bond, yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. And Maybe like of, twelve, thirteen-year-olds would probably be allowed to stay up and watch it as a massive treat. Yeah, I tell you, one of the moments I saw uh, watching it again that I remember watching it for the first time and, and thinking, "Ooh, th- this really is a bit different." There's something going on. There's something going on here. Mm. There isn't just I'm not just being entertained. Was the insert shot of Guy Dolman playing number two when he's first being interrogated and uh, McGowan drops the cloche down on his yes. breakfast and for a split second right on, the no- right yeah. on the noise there's this close up which is think- interesting because it's, it's, out, it's so jarring in terms of the, the, the there's a lot of crash zooms in yes. the episode but that is just a second of Guy Dolman's non-reaction almost isn't it he's just like looking it's, it's at like it. a photo- photograph of him yeah. and he's staring at you he's staring down the camera and it's so a it's, fantastic jarring shot isn't it yeah and it's sort of pr- pr- this always stayed with me that sort of shot what's it all about yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is with the end credits there's not it doesn't it's not representative anyway there's only I think at the time with unions and, and things like that it doesn't actually have everybody who was involved in the production listed yeah you know there are uncredited um people in there as well but i think that's just representative of the time yeah as well i mean a lot of those people in as you know a lot of people who are the extra supporting artists including the couple who you know showers yeah showers later showers later (laughs) just local port marion or penryn day drive residents that's right yes well Uh, i mean just to go back to the editing the, the, mm. the moment he arrives his kind of scamper around the village going up to the top and those slightly off-putting shots there's obviously somebody in the clock tower and then he goes yeah. up and they're not there and all this I was going to talk about him oh yes he looks a bit like Ron Grainer I thought but ah. it, it's not obviously it's not going to be Ron Grainer but it looks a little bit like him it's he just, wasn't um, Ron Grainer hadn't actually I don't think he got a commission to do the no, music too much it was Albert Elms wasn't it yes, and, and there's the another guy score. <laughs> but they, they didn't I think some of their work got used mm. but it was only like, I think Magoo actually whistled the tune to Ron Grainer didn't he that's the story I've heard Apo- well, yeah, we don't know if that's apocryphal absolutely and it might be I mean the thing is with um, Ron Grainer fantastic um, yes. know, musician and, and songwriter as was Ronnie Hazelhurst uh-huh. you know, two of a kind who <laughs> Yeah, they, they, you know, would write for television Doctor Who, of course, with Ron Grainer, and Tales of the Unexpected. Yes, but of course, it's it's always a collaborative effort. I mean, Dealey Derbyshire probably has has an equal kind of right to claim authorship of the Doctor Who theme. 
with her work with the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Yeah. But I think maybe with the Prisoner Second theme, rather than this really weird kind of... There's lots yeah. of it's not a theremin, but it's like these really kind of high-pitched notes that it hits. Yeah, the second theme that feels a lot more kind of... A lot more hooks within it yes. as a piece of music than the first one does. first one just sounds odd. It's like a Stockhausen, maybe it's like a John Cage or Stockhausen avant-garde <laughs> piece, but that, maybe that's what McGowan was going for originally. It's, 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 uh, there's something lovely, quite childish about the actual score. When he's running around and at first, he's first in the village, he has no idea where he is, there's no music at all. No. And the first, it's only the first time the which, score comes in is when he gets into the taxi. Which was what you were saying before about the isolation. Yes. You know, having no score. And it comes back again, doesn't it, in um, Many Happy, Happy Returns, Returns, yeah, where you have this absence of diegetic sound, of the sound of that world. Yes, they sort of pipe in some wind yes. sound a lot, yeah. um, which is, I think it is quite stock. It's like the thunderclap at the beginning. Yes, which, That's, which is was in, used... In, a ha- in every Hammer film. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the scars of Dracula, it's at the beginning of that. It's, a, it's as ubiquitous as the Wilhelm scream, yeah. though, isn't it? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's, uh, yeah, so I mean, just right from the off, they've established... The, the classic thing of world building, yeah. which is so important. Which, which is, I, I want to just cycle back a few minutes to the opening, to the title sequence. Yes, which which uh, is in in this episode is the only time it's extended. Well, f- no, arguably Fallout and Once Upon a Time have. I mean, Once Upon a Time has the previously on the prisoner, yeah. and then in Fallout you have those beautiful aerial shots mm. at the reveal of uh, the Hotel the, Port Mary in in Penny Day Day. Um, which, you know, but you see the little cars, don't you? Yeah. At the bottom of the, of the, of the screen, <laughs> yeah. which is lovely. With the crew apart. Yeah. I love that. And there's a variation on the theme as well, isn't it? There? There's a more darker tone to that theme. But, yeah, this is the longer version of the opening sequence, but it gives more away. And my favourite moment of this is where the prisoner drives and he's too low for the barrier. Yes. And I think that is a lovely moment of character building. And it tells you a lot about the character. He's playing by the rules because he stops. He doesn't have to because mm. that barrier's down and he could easily go through it, but he doesn't. He stops and plays by the rules. And he takes the ticket and the barrier opens and he carries on. And I love those little moments. It's almost a semiotic, arguably. It's giving that kind of information, a non-verbal communication about the character. Yes. That's telling you little moments, a little piece of information about who he is and what he stands for. And I, I, I think that's a fantastic moment to kind of focus on. Yes. In there. Oh no! It's kind of strange they took. Maybe they they established it and then they took it out because yeah. they'd already established it. But you don't need. I mean, in you know, following episodes, you don't really need to see all those kind of moments. No, you know, you see him going to the the Hyde Park Underground, walking down the corridor, dun, 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 Seem, dun, seemingly forever, seemingly forever, <laughs> and then into Mark Stein's with that brilliant office. sort of frame filling, arms flung yes. position of his. And then the, spilling, <laughs> yes, yeah, with the with the thunderclap again, and then but, spilling Mark Steen's tea. And do you know the that office set was built in the car park? Oh, was it? Yes, it was just built for that opening sequence. We're famously with uh, George Mark Steen doing a Hitchcock style cameo. Yes, in there. <laughs> now you you did a little bit of digging on uh, Mr. Mark Steen, didn't you? You found out some information. Well, about um, the this is the thing. I was I was really trying to establish really who was. More behind it, Tomlin or, or Markstein. It's, I think they're having read about it. You, you get a lot of people of one camp and the other, and they tend to sort of go at each other, and it's all very, all a bit sort of fan fanboyish. What interested me with, I think, the story that Markstein told 
was that he knew about these um, internment, uh, camp, camps, yeah. internment camps. There was one in sort of Inverlair Lodge yes, in Scotland. Scotland. Yeah, yeah. And he'd posited this idea as to McGowan where they were making Danger Man. Mm. And I think Markstein believed very much from the off that he was that the prisoner was John Drake, mm. which, of course, McGowan absolutely had no intention of, of it ever being John. It was a complete cut-off. I think he was quite happy to let yes. the audiences at the time think it was a continuation of Danger Man because he's playing a secret agent or arguably a secret agent. He's playing that kind of character. Mm. So there's no reason to... Let the audience, if they want to think that's John Drake at that point, let them think it's John Drake because it sells the series. Yes. He wants people to get invested. He wants all the, all the spy tropes, doesn't yeah. he, from day one. And um, it's, I think he quite likes the, the muddying effect of, of different forms of intrigue. Yeah. So, well, it obviously wasn't, but if you think it was... Then but I think by the time you get to Once Upon a Time and Fallout, if you've invested in it and you start to kind of... Your mind's open a little bit to what it's about, and mm. to what themes he's exploring about society and individuality and where we're going with technology, you you, you kind of get what he's doing with Fallout. Yes. And you, but the thing is with Fallout, you can interpret it in so many ways, um, which we will come to when we get to that. But that's going to be a long episode, isn't it? That's going to be a very long episode. But yeah, Mark, Mark Steen was, yeah, it was, it was, it knew about these internment camps. There's a place near Port Marion, actually, um, called Nantgwetherin. It's not like the village in that respect, but it's a place where everybody only speaks Welsh and it's there for Welsh learners. So you go and stay there and uh, it has its own shop, its own local shop, local pub, uh, <laughs> but everybody speaks Welsh. Nobody speaks English and it's designed to help you learn the language. And a similar kind of thing in, the, in, in Russia where they would have spies who would be trained in these little villages where they would kind of represent Britain. Where people only speak British, they would, you know, how to how to order things in in English and you know things like uh, slang and colloquialisms and you know like in that famous scene in Inglorious Bastards, where Michael yeah. Fassbender orders the uh, the three drinks, yes, and he puts gives, his three fingers up, not two fingers and a thumb, and gives himself away. He gives himself away, doesn't he? Uh, within well, that, and how to blend in. And it's almost like that as well, a little bit, The Prisoner, isn't it? But, yes. Except it's not like a pricey for an invasion. It is a kind of concentration camp almost, a, a holding pen for people who know too much. Yeah. So already you've got this intrigue, this spy kind of trope. Yeah. It's, stumbled across. I mean, it's uh, one of the re- reasons, uh, one of the many reasons it still uh, survives is that it is, it's, it is a very strong concept. Mm. It's a great... Mm. Um, here's this village uh, everyone here is a spy they've been kind of largely brainwashed but they can't leave because they know too much and you can't leave hmm. I'll tell you that <laughs> the first episode and, 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 and <laughs> that must have been a bit um, I mean I was thinking The Fugitive hmm. was already out in the States by now so you, you interestingly enough one of the reviewers of the show likened The Prisoner to The Fugitive well in the, there's, there's, there's the resolution of the single episode plot but hmm. he's still He's still on the run at the end of every episode. Yeah. He hasn't sort of, He can only sort of succeed in escaping one more time, yeah. but he'll still be escaping in the next but, one. But in the same in the same way, you kind of thinking. I'm, I'm sure most of the people who first saw the arrival yeah. were thinking, "Well, that helicopter finally he's in the helicopter." Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, in your heart, he's not going to escape. He's you know that's going to because you've got the whole. It's the first episode of the series. Well, yeah, so but you, I suppose you do. People people seeing the episode, seeing the series for the first mm. time didn't know it was going to be. He's trapped there for good. Yeah. 
Well, maybe they didn't, but... But, um, but it's interesting enough, back in those days, back in the 60s, and uh, up until, I don't know, maybe the mid-90s, I think, Star Trek Deep Space Nine was one of the first kind of shows that had like a serialised arc, mm. rather than just standalone episodes. But for syndication, you know, you wanted a TV show that you could show out of order. Yes. And you can do that with The Fugitive. And to a certain extent, you can do it with Prisoner. Apart from the last two, yes. Apart from the last two and the beginning. Yeah. Um, and there are some lines of dialogue in Dance of the Dead uh, which kind of lend themselves for the episode to be earlier. And I think um, Six of One Appreciation Society have their own list of where they think the episodes mm. go. I think they're right as well. I, th- I think so. But, but interestingly enough, the second episode that was produced, according to Andrew Pixley's book, was Free For All. Yeah, which does work as a as a second episode for me. Dance of the Dead, I think, works better as a second episode. One one thing I do want to focus on, and something I love, and something that we, I show students, and they never fail to be impressed, is is the use of mat shots. Yes, and there's a beautiful example of a mat shot, which is a little bit betrayed now by the high definition and remaster and the DVD remasters. Is the filing cabinet scene. Well, I spe- that was always that, that they never managed to get that right. No, um, but on, could- I remember watching on TV in the in the nineties, and I, it didn't even occur to me. It just looked like a you know a single point perspective, like a Kubrick kind of shot mm. of this filing cabinet scene with the automatic arm coming, and it's almost like what they do in the end of Raiders, isn't it, with the warehouse? Yes, you know, it's only the the, the first section, the lower kind of uh, third kind of thing, is the actual studio floor and the rest is a matte painting Albert Whitlock it's glass matte isn't it yeah, yeah. Where, they, where they will put a sheet of glass in front of the camera and then paint around it and they did it in Star Wars as well with the the, um, the loading bay of the Star yeah, Destroyers the last the- shot of Die Hard 2 I think is uh, a matte painting oh. a matte shot it was uh, you know that pulls back with a plane yes yes like it is yes it is you're right yes and it's it's one of those kind of things you think isn't that 30s technology but no it's it's a great it's a it's no, a wonderful it's, art. It's, oh, um, yes, it, it's it is from that. It's not from the golden era. It's a little bit later. Uh, it's called. The, uh, you had people like Norman Dawn, the Dawn process, and there's some beautiful kind of mats where they would do optically, where they would kind of cover those elements on the film and then shoot and then expose the next element. Mm. And, and it's a very long, long drawn out. You know, t- Sunrise Tale of Two Humans famously had that beautiful shot of those two people walking yes. and the cars going passing, and then it would turn into like a vista and amazing but yeah the, I think it was the uh, dawn process where he would put the glass in front and shoot the scene and, the, and not expose the top section and then paint it in and expose that section for the scene it's, there's so many ways they could do it very lengthy yeah time consuming especially glass shots oh god because they sure, would have yeah. to paint with the camera set up in position it's a lot of money uh, you know and, and time spent on doing that but yeah that scene it's lovely because it, it is betrayed now. There's a little bit of light reflection, isn't there, at the at the bottom of the... Of yeah, the, if you haven't the, seen it, it's basically a shot of a, a, load, a load of filing cabinets on either side. And they've done a, a matte painting at the back to make it look like it's stretching out into infinity, mm. basically. Uh, but it's actually about four filing cabinets long. And then yeah. there's the painting. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's quite easy to spot. What I found, what I found lovely was, uh, in the research for this is they were using the Green Dome for storage. Oh, were they? Yeah, they were storing things in there, and some of the villas as well. And some of the cast and crew stayed in some of the. It was quite. It's quite a small. My um, I I got married in Port Marion, and uh, my parents stayed in the Green Dome. I sort of I, I reserved them the Green Dome, assuming it was colossal. 
Well, like some massive. Interesting. I, uh, it's tiny. A, a, a mutual friend also got married there, and I shared with my partner at the time, and and, and your brothers and his partner at the time. We we shared one of the. Uh, it was at the bottom of the bell tower. We we stayed the night there, ah. which was which was lovely. Yeah, and of course, Kai's brother really kind of in the morning, kind of doing all the prisoner quotes because he's a massive prisoner fan as well. But yeah, so talking about the bell tower, the man who vanishes. Yes. But I think just the fact that there's a man there who then disappears when McGowan runs up to the top of the bell tower and there's nobody there. Yes. And it just adds to that kind of mystery, doesn't it? And then you hear the bell. Yes. And, then, and, and again, the way it's edited, that whole sequence, just... It's like a panic, isn't it? It's so quick yeah. going up that stairs. I mean, the... the the two effects of of, of arrival. I mean, mm. well, they've got to they've got to build the world and say this is what's going on now. They have to wrong foot you mm. all the way through as because of the way they're wrong footing him. Mm. So the audience is still, I just, this is kind of I'm disturbed a little bit. I really don't know what's going on. And at, this, and at the same time, by the end of the episode, mm. you kind of know everything. Yeah, you know that um, you still know nothing. Yes. Well, you, you you basically know everything you need to know. Like, yeah. he can't get out now. Even when you think he's going to get out, it's probably a trick. Mm. Um, that sort of smile on George Baker's face um, when he's watching the helicopter. Yeah. And, you know, and, and so from that this point on, for the rest of the series, you kind of now, you now know he's, he's absolutely he's, he's stuck yeah. there. And you can't trust anything that anybody's going to do. What I quite like is that he then spies the cafe opening. Yes. So he goes down to talk. To the lady, and what I thought was quite interesting, putting this into context of 1966, we're still in an era where it was very difficult for people with regional accents to get onto television. Mm. You still had this very um, received pronunciation. I mean, you ever seen the film Hindle Wakes? No. Oh, you need to see that. It's set in I don't know, and there's a very and of course, bearing in mind that this there's a beautiful scene in Hindle Wakes where this lady who is supposed to be like you know a Lancastrian. She's supposed to be talking like that, you know. And she's like, oh, tell me, what is that headland jutting out into the ocean? And he's like, why, that's the Great Orm in Clan Dudno. So, yeah, so I, I find it quite interesting that you've got um, Patsy Smart has got this very northern accent. Yes. You know, she's like, uh, I'll go see if coffee's ready. Yeah. And, this, and, and it's, I think you've got to put it into that kind of context at the time. It, it was still, you'd still have a lot of people with RP. Yes. see pronunciation on television including um, McGowan because as as I didn't even realise that he was I know he was born in New York but he was um, raised in Sheffield yes yes. so he I've, I've heard him in, being interviewed and it it, it, it sort of does suddenly come, come out <laughs> yeah a little bit, yeah, of like a little bit oh what the hell were go back Pat what did you just say then <laughs> and he, he would have he, that the voice of his because I always thought it was more Kind of, uh, there was an Irish. Yeah, I think he had Irish, Irish heritage, though. Obviously, didn't he? yeah. And, and of course, being born in New York and that, that's transatlantic. He does famously in Colombo, doesn't he? Yeah. In some episode, well, he was a Danger Man as well, doesn't he? Have that. He was American twang. in Danger Man, wasn't yeah. he? That was the. Str- well, it always felt a bit mid-Atlantic to me. It didn't feel kind of fully authentic as an American accent. It was. It was a standard uh, sort of um, British. Playing America, all you got to do is just turn you got Bernard Hearn. It's like Peter Sellers used to call him Hearn Hearn. Whenever he does an American uh, newscaster, it was like, Hearn 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 Hearn. It's putting an error into yeah, your yeah, yeah. voice. Oh, I'm an American now. He, but McGowan was in the Sheffield repertory, wasn't he? He was, yes. With Paul Eddington. Paul Eddington, who plays Cobb. 
Yes, in this episode, it's a, it's stuffed with famous. Uh, but just just for our, our international listeners, if you're not familiar with the concept of repertory, it's a it's it's not really something that we see much of today, is it? Uh, repertory theatre. I've only ever heard it spoken of in the past. I don't yeah. know if it, that's so you my get, ignorance. You but. would get actors who would learn a play during the day, and then they would perform it the following week in the evening. But during the day of the second week, they'd learn a new play. So they'd be learning lines for a new play and they'd only have a week to do it and then it would premiere the following week while they were still performing one play in the evening but learning lines. So it's a real, it's really kind of cutting your teeth as an actor. Oh, yeah, yeah. And learning your lines and kind of giving you range and helping you develop character and range. And it's a, a lot of famous actors of that generation had, had done a lot of work in rep. That sort of um, ideology was transferred into the way that they used to put TV shows on live mm. plays were done yes. live yeah, on, yeah. and so there was no oh damn i fluffed it let's try, well, can we I try again we didn't have the technology though either to record so it's always difficult when i'm showing students you know the, like the history of the bbc i can only show them from certain yeah. years because there was everything was going out live yeah and and hardly any of it was kept i'd just been reading a book um by alvin rakoff who directed a lot of these things including sean connery's first lead mm. in a, a requiem for a heavyweight mm. um which doesn't exist because it wasn't no it, was, it, it went, went out live like, and, a, like a play and and it was maybe somebody taped it somewhere but they were probably taped over because tapes are so expensive the very first sitcom on, on the bbc uh pinwright's progress i think it was called there's only photos yes we can't even we can't even watch it so on um, next on my list is um something i really wanted to talk about is number six and the cordless telephone. Yes, which uh, kids? Let me let me try to explain this to you because it's, <laughs> it's kind of hard to process. What's up, kids? Uh, at what point uh, phones or telephones, uh, which seldom had cameras in them, uh, <laughs> were attached to the wall <laughs> by what we would call a cord? <laughs> Uh, if you're an American, uh, the cord was 385 meters long and could stretch between rooms. Uh, oh, in, in all the famous American films where they'd have him in the kitchen, the, the mother would take yeah. him off the wall, famously cradle between shoulder and ear, and be able to walk out to the into outside. They were that long, weren't they? It's, the th- it's, the, it's probably the, my defining memory of Roseanne is the yeah. fact that she's just she's this endless cord. Or the mother in ET. Yes, yeah. <laughs> D. Wallace Stone. Yes, if you the, this was a, a miraculous thing. You could see on McGoon's face when he picks up the phone, and it's it's there's a tone there, but he's he's looking for the cord. Mm. Absolutely uh, pure yeah. innovation. But of course, this concept isn't new. I mean, the previous year, Star Trek had um, had, had launched. Um, and of course, the concept of the communicators were mm. cordless as well, like today's smartphone. In fact, some of the early Nokias had that kind of yes. flip feature, didn't they? Yeah. So it was a kind of um, futuristic thing. Where can we go with this? Get rid of the cords. You know, and we see that with the speaker as well in his room. Yes. You know, what I, want, I don't want to describe what we're seeing, but I think what's important here is that in his kind of vision of the village, he's tried to avoid anachronisms. He's made everybody very colourful and not the fashion of the time. Yes. He's tried to make it timeless to a certain degree, as best he can. Whereas shows like Space 1999 just look like they were made in the yes, 1970s. Yes, in, in 1971 <laughs> specifically. Yeah. They just look like 70s shows. They don't look like the future. Whereas The, whereas the Prisoner has almost a timeless quality. There are little giveaways of... Um, and there are some anachronisms in there, but I think he's he has tried to avoid. There's a sort of Edwardian um, feeling to it, mm. 
I find I find that with a lot of episodes of of the Avengers as well. There's, there seems to be a sort of the leads tended to very seem to enjoy their childhood toys yeah. and and stuff like the, the the pop goes the weasel. But I don't think Edwardian fashion ever really went away. I mean, you've got I mean, if you look at the Teddy Boys, yes, and they're called the Teddy Boys because they're in Edwardian yeah. fashion, aren't they? You know, William Hartnell and, uh, and some of the, like Pertwee to a certain extent, they got kind of like Edwardian clothing, smoking jackets or these kind of frock coats as so, well. I, I think, think it's even, timeless fashion. Even by the 60s, it, it, it had probably been established that this look it was, wasn't just... But look, they, I, they wouldn't, people in the 60s wouldn't look mm, back to the Edwardian period and go, God, in the same way that we now no. would look back on the 80s and go, well, that that's not just the 80s, that's 1987. Yes. Look at the yeah. horrible... Yes. <laughs> but if you look at Carnaby Street in 1966, 67, and look, you've got a lot of these kind of militaristic, um, like Crimean War kind of jackets, like Jimi Hendrix would wear these kind of uh, military style tunics yes. and uniforms and these frock coats with the, you know, the Mr. Fish uh, frilly. Uh, the Austin sh- Powers yeah, kind of Yeah, the thing. velvety jackets. But you're right, it's, it's, it's this wonderful blend of, of the past, the future. And yeah, from that you get this timeless... But there's something else going on here, which you can only really kind of view from a 21st century viewpoint. And it's not just the phone. It's also he's predicting on-demand culture, which I love. And I only really <laughs> occurred to me recently is where he pushes the button for the taxi rank. And it immediately arrives. And it immediately arrives. You know, instead of pushing a button and a taxi will be you in five minutes. From a narrative point of view, obviously we can't afford to wait. I'm going to go and look at his watch, waiting for the taxi to turn up. But immediately... And also that stretches into things like Uber yes, as well. You know, we have an on-demand taxi service now. You can call an Uber and it can be there in minutes and you can see it arrive. But now, as opposed to then, if you were listening to, let's say, The Beatles' All You Need Is Love, or what was in 66, uh, Yellow Submarine was 66, wasn't it? You wanted to go and buy Yellow Submarine. You'd hear it on the radio or you'd buy Revolver or you'd wait for it and you'd have to save up your pocket and you'd have to go and buy the seven-inch single. And you had an attainment process. You had an appreciation because you had to wait for it. Yes. Whereas today, you hear a song, and you get it on Spotify or YouTube, and you can just instantly download it. You want to watch a film, you can press play on Netflix, and you can watch it immediately. You want food, your delivery will deliver it, or you can just go through a drive-thru and get it immediately. Today, we're just completely yeah. on-demand culture. And if you have three hours to spare, uh, Chris <laughs> and I will now go off on a massive rant massive about, about how t- that attainment process is built into the, the value of the music and the films. Into everything, an appreciation by people. And, 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 and I, I, not- I started to notice that when the first MP3 players came out. Is that I remember buying an MP3 player, and I went to Paris... And uh, I remember putting all my CDs onto it mm. and then sat on the, went on the Eurotone, the, on the Eurostar, and sat there and not being able to decide what to listen to because I, there was too much choice. And it's, I find that now with Netflix. Yeah. Like you can spend half an hour just going through it because there's too much choice. And then you just read a book. Yeah, and you, you don't watch anything on yeah. Netflix anyway. So I can't, I can't. I've, I've waited... I only had an hour and a half, and I've done a, a half an hour of that. I've just been going scrolling. But I, but I love the fact that McGowan is kind of inadvertently, or maybe maybe this was intentional, he's preempting on-demand culture mm. in the village. Our technology in the village is way ahead of, of, you know. Yes. But then again, you know, the internet, the official birthday, I think, is 1983. Yes. But the technology that's, that built the internet was, was, you know, existed, you know, years before, I think, it started, stuff started after World War Two, and then built into the 50s and 60s. The internet, as it's kind of like 
known today, 83, and then Berners-Lee with the hypertext transfer protocol in the late 80s. But it's been around and it's developed. And I think the military always have the technology before the public. Yes. And it's which, like the internet, the, the, the technology exists, but then it becomes commercialised and domestic, you know, for domestic use. And I think the village is kind of representative of that. It's like the technology is ahead before the public have it, like the cordless phone, mm. the cordless speaker in number six's apartment. I suppose it, that is a, a sci-fi element. You have to, I mean, it's, it's, it's a slightly unclassifiable genre, isn't it? Mm. Uh, the, uh, the thing, the prisoner, because it, is it sci-fi or is it a spy? Was it fantasy or is it spy? Is it <laughs> allegory? Is it... I mean, it's, again, you, the, the, because it came out in 67, you have that Cold War aspect. Yes. It is ostensibly a, a, a program about a spy. Mm. And which side is he on? Well, is it it's, are they the goodies or the baddies? What, what are sides? Mm. But it's still a... It's quite an unusual thing to have a Cold War spy series that is, is actually a sci-fi. But it, there's nothing in the dialogue that really kind of alludes to it. Um, to the Cold War itself? Yeah. I mean, th- th- there's one line that the taxi driver says to number six. She says, you know, polls and checks. Mm. And he says, what would polls or checks be doing here? Yes. You know, and that kind of alludes to that Cold War era. And then the line... Eastern Bloc residents be in, in this village? Am I on the other side of the Iron Curtain here? He talk, George Baker talks about it when he takes over as number two. It's kind of, uh, it's, it's, you know, people change, sort of loyalties. And it's for, for the post, for this episode, probably only actually, mm. it, there is, you're still thinking, well, he's obviously talking about Russia. Mm. And the line that Cobb says, um, he says at the end, uh, well, something like, good luck working for your, my, my new masters. Yes. I'll be the same. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You'll find him a tough nut to crack. But he. Um, but again, you don't really know who his masters are. Are his? Uh, no. The, the these are unanswered driver, questions. She greets greets him in French. Yeah. Why did you speak to me in French? Yes. <laughs> she, then she talks about the checks and the polls. We've got uh, number two Baker's number two. Yes. You know, and he. What does he say? Um, I mean, Cobb says, "I've been saying." And George Baker's number two says au revoir, and then, of course, Cobb says au revoir. Uh, yeah. So we've got a mix of languages and cultures. So we're not, they're never really given away. And I don't think, I personally don't think it's important, really, in the whole context of the allegory. It doesn't matter who. It, uh, I, think, I think it matters only in, in as much as it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's, it's a smokescreen. It's, it's, it's not. You but, see, I've always seen the village as a microcosm of society. Yes. Of the world. So it, it's, it's its own little world. And, of course, the, that's never more kind of represented. I mean, obviously, you've got all the glow iconography mm. throughout the series, not, not just Rover, but the, the seating, the globes in uh, number six's apartment, his world on the, the map on the... on the, uh, the, 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 I don't know, the pop the items pop, yeah, that they, yeah. they were used and didn't, then didn't use. That was the world. The world wasn't exploding, it? wasn't yes. it, at the, end, at the end times. But I think in Fallout as well, when, he, when uh, you know, the, the, the exterior shots of London... I love that comparison because it's like he's still a prisoner, but he's a prisoner of something bigger. Yes. But he's still a prisoner. And it's kind of just showing you the difference between the village being the world as a, as a microcosm of, of society in the world. Because it has all these people from yeah. all over the world there uh, with a structure, with, you know, with all these kind of things. As we get the helicopter ride with number two, he's, he's, he's basically saying, uh, you know, there's a graveyard. Uh, yeah, oh, there's a social what, club. There's, there's a, it's got a sort of like, he says, uh, oh, we, we've, we've got everything here water, electricity, <laughs> yeah. and that's it. Sky, <laughs> Sky Plus. <laughs> water and electricity, that's yeah. pretty basic. And uh, my, my favourite line from the episode 
Everybody's very nice. <laughs> I just love the way he delivers that. It's magnificent. So if you want to find us on Facebook, you can find us uh, by searching for podcast free for all, one word. And if you want to look for us on Twitter, we are free for all pod or one word. So quite easy to find. Uh, feel free if you want to comment, join the group, send messages. All that stuff. Keep it fun. Keep it light. <laughs> Remember Noel's house party. Yeah, keep, keep, it it, keep it light. Free for All podcast was presented by Kai Ross and Chris Bainbridge. The theme tune was by Gordon Milton. And special thanks to Jemima Duncar for the artwork. Please see, see you. you.